the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. For those of you who don't know the show, the show's in two parts, not necessarily equal parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, and we'll be doing that tonight. But let's get first to estate planning. Beth, do we have a couple of questions on that. Well, we have an issue, I'm going to say. Um, I know it's the time of New Year's resolutions, everybody's doing things, but if you're a single parent, if you're married and you have small children, there are many, many people that do not do estate planning when your children are your most precious asset. Um, and several people have asked if you may comment on that. Okay, one of the things you should do, every parent who has a child under the age of 18, and even if you have a child over the age of 18, should have a will. Now, a will, ordinarily, we're talking about a will that, you you know, it's a document witnessed by two people that disposes of assets in your name alone and appoints an executor. But one of the other things a will can do is appoint a guardian for minor children. Now, if your child is under 18, you should have a will and you should have a guardian appointed under that will for that child. Now, you can also appoint a guardian under a deed. I've almost never seen it happen, but in in theory or in actuality, it can be done. But the point of the guardian, that's somebody to take care of your children until they reach the age of 18. Now, you might say, hey, wait a minute. I don't want my child to control my money when he's 18. That's too young. That's fine. Then you appoint a trustee to manage the assets that you may leave after you're gone. So the trustee can manage the assets for the child until the child is 21, 25, think is right. And of course, some people stagger it that my child gets half my assets at 25, the rest of my assets at 30. And meanwhile, it's managed by a trustee. But you want to appoint a guardian. You want to choose the person who's going to take care of the child after you're gone. You don't want the child to be ping-ponged through the court. You don't want the child to be subject to a, a court battle and, and who the child's going to live with and whatever. It's kind of like a divorce in some cases, and it can get very nasty. And here's some other things about a will, which people don't really understand. 
let's say for the sake of argument, you have assets in your name alone. Maybe you have a life insurance policy that you have and you bought it years ago and you don't have beneficiaries on it, or maybe the company lost the beneficiaries and you pass away and you say, well, I'm married. My spouse is going to get the money. Well, no, if you have no will, half those assets are going to go to your spouse and the other half of the assets are going to go to your children. And if those children, again, are under the age of 18, they can't legally sign their own name. They may have a court-appointed guardian, protect their interest in court, and and that's not the most efficient way to do things. Ordinarily, if you're married, and especially if it's a first marriage, you want to leave all your assets to your spouse. You don't want to leave half your assets to your spouse and half the assets to your children, especially if they're under the age of of 18. Uh, Let's say you bought a house, and you bought the house before you were married. Your name alone is on the deed. Something happens to you. Half the house goes to your spouse, and the other half goes to your children. One of the questions we have is, what if I don't know a person to be the guardian or the person to be the trustee, then what do you do? Anybody you choose is probably better than than nobody. You know, ordinarily we recommend family first because, you know, who who's going to take care of your children? But could it be a best friend? Yes. Could it be, you know, and, and of course, in some cases, divorced spouses, you can appoint, assuming they're a good parent, you can appoint your divorced spouse to be a guardian or trustee for your kids because a lot of people, even if they have their own differences, they're going to work together to take care of the kids. I can't always give you the answer, but whatever you choose is better than nothing. And of course, you know, a a lot of problems we have cases where somebody can say, well, I know who's going to be guardian of my kids, but if something happens to that person, I have no idea. Well, at least get that person down because that's better than nothing. You know, half my life is spent talking about husband and wife, what if they die together in an accident? And and statistically, it doesn't happen. It does happen occasionally. I, you can go to a newspaper story and say this couple died on their way to the wedding or, you know, a monstrous traffic accident. But statistically, very rarely does a husband and wife die in the same accident. So if you have one other person there, we're, we're probably covered. Yes, would it be a good idea to have a what if? There's always It's always good to have what ifs in your planning. If something happens to this person, I'm going to go to that person. But sometimes life doesn't give us a lot of choices and we got to take what we have. Everybody should have a will. Your will can be as simple as I leave everything to my spouse. If something happens to my spouse, I leave it to my children. I appoint my spouse to be the executor, guardian of my children children. If something happens to my spouse, I appoint my best friend, my cousin, my brother or sister to be guardian trustee of my children until they reach the age of 25, 30, whatever. You know, the choices are yours. There's not always easy choices, but whatever choice you make is going to be better than nothing. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough asks a question from our audience and we play it on his show. So Kevin, please take it away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. And every week we promise you that uh, Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan will answer one of your legal questions regarding uh, estate care and elder law. And uh, Mike, today's question comes from Teddy. He says, uh, Mike, my second wife of 20 years died about four months ago. She had a will but left me nothing. I've been really upset about this because she saved all of her money while I paid all of our bills. I thought we would leave each other everything. Can I contest her will? Mike Connors, kind of a sticky situation. Yeah, it is. And uh, yes, he can contest the will. But more importantly, he can put a claim in against her estate, what's called a right of election claim. In New York and in almost every state, if you're legally married, unless you signed a prenuptial agreement or a separation agreement of something that nature, you can't completely disinherit a spouse without their consent. So in this case, Teddy, at the very least, can put a claim against her estate and should be entitled to at least a third of her estate. And that may uh, compensate him for some of those uh, uh, medical bills, etc. Um, but they can really avoid this situation, Mike, by better communication and better planning. Is that correct? Yeah. Ordinarily, a second marriage situation, we like to do a trust agreement so there are clear boundaries as to who gets what after one person dies, who gets 
the rest after the second person dies, half goes to the first set of kids, or whatever it is. But if you, if you have a split family situation, you usually want to get some kind of agreement in writing so the boundaries are clear, so you don't end up in court after somebody's gone. Well, I think it'll be something, friend, that uh, if you are in a similar situation, uh, certainly Teddy's uh, circumstance would uh, be a red flag. Say, hey, get this dealt with. And there's no better way to do that than to prepare in advance. And that's where you should call Connors and Sullivan. I've used them. Many of my listeners have used them to help plan uh, some of those very difficult things. Call them today, 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And you can ask Mike more questions at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Mike Connors, thanks so much. One last point. Teddy should see a lawyer right away. Teddy, call 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Thanks again to Kevin McCullough, who you can hear on the station Monday through Friday at the 5 o'clock hour, 4 o'clock on Wednesdays. And he joins John Katzmatidis at 5. And, of course, Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock on 970. I'm sorry, 570, the mission. Tonight, we have two guests on. Thomas Woods, we're going to be talking about the Catholic Church, and his first comment is how the Catholic Church helped build Western civilization. And then we're going to be talking to H.W. Brands. We're going to be talking about the second set of founding fathers, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, John Calhoun. It's a part of American history that's a little bit forgotten, you know, so we're going to do a little bit to, to correct that. And, you know, last, last week we talked about Andrew Jackson and the Trail of Tears. We're going to be talking a little bit more about it over the next few weeks because we'll be talking about the, the, the part of American history between the American Revolution and the Civil War. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. 
time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we're very pleased to have as our guest Thomas Woods, who the, the one book I want to talk to him about is How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. How you doing today, Mr. Woods? Doing well, Mike. Thanks. Obviously, we know what your book is about, but give us your theory. Well, for a long time, it was this conventional wisdom, right, that anything that religion has anything to do with must be stupid and backward and ignorant, and all the progress and enlightenment we've made has involved moving away from it. It's the sort of thing that you probably got in fifth grade or, you know, maybe in a sociology course or something, heaven knows. But the interesting thing about that is that for the past half century or so, scholars in more fields than you can count have been quietly spending their time overturning this, that this is actually a prejudice that goes back a long time. But when you actually bother to look at it, it turns out that a lot of what we believe about where science comes from or law or many other things, it turns out that not only was the church not an obstacle to these things, the church was the indispensable support of, of so many of them. So, for example, I mean, I know you, I'm giving you much too long of an answer, but on the question of the church and science, everybody thinks he knows the answer to this. Like, we already know the church was stupid and condemned Galileo, and these are all stupid heads, and thank goodness we don't do that anymore. But if, if you were to run into a professional historian of science today, whether they're Catholic or Protestant or atheist or whatever— they will say, today we don't believe that. Today we believe that's just simplistic and silly, and there's a much more nuanced and interesting answer to these questions. So that's what I was trying to do, was take all this modern scholarship coming from Catholic and non-Catholic scholars alike to say, you know what, the Church has gotten a bad rap, and it's, uh, well, frankly, an outrage. Yeah, but it's getting worse. It's not getting better. I mean, the, the, the Church is the source of all evil in today's world. That's why i got to sell more copies of this thing, Mike. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm doing my best over here. The interesting thing is, apparently I struck some kind of a chord because this book has been translated into at least 15 languages at this point. So all over the Western world, not just the Western world, uh, it's been translated into Korean and uh, at least one or two other Asian languages. It's all over the place. I think there is this frustration that there's a one-sided view. Now, I'm not, it's not to say that obviously, you know, not that there haven't been things that churchmen really ought to do penance for, to say the least, and, and genuine atrocities. But that doesn't mean that every single time you talk about the church, any more than any time you'd have to talk about U.S. history, uh, you have to talk about atrocities. Or every time we talk about France, we have to remind people, you know, they did guillotine some people. I know that. On the other hand, they did do other things. So, yeah, you're right. It's it's a, it's a struggle. And the and the thing is, not helping matters is the current uh, s- slew of bishops around the world, and I here include the Bishop of Rome himself, are frankly, well, not exactly the most impressive crop in church history. And I can fully understand people's frustration and anger toward the hierarchy, but that has nothing to do with the historical record of how the church built who we are. Well, let me ask you from some of your other writings, since we're kind of getting into it now, Vatican II. What's your feeling about Vatican II? Well, in principle, Vatican II reaffirms Catholic tradition. In practice, a lot of the documents are worded so obscurely and unclearly that we've just been fighting about them for the past 50 years. One side will say, well, I like paragraph 88, section 3. And the other one will say, yeah, but you're leaving out paragraph 107. 
and they seem to contradict each other. And so then one side takes the paragraph it likes, the other one takes the other paragraph, and nobody knows what's what. And then meanwhile, all the bishops are saying, we've got to regain the spirit of Vatican II. Nobody can identify what on earth it is. So it's, it's been really a source of confusion for a lot of the faithful, because we're all arguing over the same text, and nobody knows which paragraph to privilege over the other one. I don't think that's been particularly helpful. All right. You mentioned the leadership of the current pope. What's wrong with it? Oh, for heaven's sake. It's, he can find time to praise everybody in the world except ordinary, humble, observant Catholics. Those are the people he calls Pharisees. He condemns every day for their superficiality. He cannot say enough negative things about his own flock. But whoever you are, you could be a pro-abortion Italian politician, doesn't matter. He'll praise you to the skies. It's bizarre. And given that the pope is supposed to be a kind of father figure, I mean, that is where the word pope comes from, from the Italian. He, it's, it's very, very disturbing and unnerving for your own spiritual father to have all the time in the world for everybody on earth but you. And he is interested in all sorts of diversity except within the Catholic Church. There, uh, uh, diversity in terms of or the uh, maracas during the Mass. But if you want to have the old traditional Latin Mass with some semblance of solemnity and dignity, well, he thinks there's something mentally wrong with you. It's, it's bizarre. It's like you're living in a Kafka novel. It makes no sense. For you, what is the appeal of the Latin Mass? Because, believe it or not, in our office, we sometimes have a debate on this. But, uh, well, it's not, it's not even so much the language, per se, because you could translate the old Latin Mass into beautiful Elizabethan English, and I would still prefer that over the new Mass we have today said in Latin. So it's not primarily the language, although that is something. It's that that Mass is really, really ancient in its fundamentals. So some of those prayers go back to the 4th century, I mean, really, really old. And the Mass developed very slowly and gradually and imperceptibly, like the growth of a person. Day to day, you don't notice the difference between your face day to day. It might be different in 10 years, but you don't see the change. They're imperceptible. And that's how the Greek Orthodox also think of the liturgy. It's something you don't go around saying, you know, the Mass sure needs a good editor. I mean, how <laughs> impious would you have to be? So they were appalled when the West decided, you know, that's what we – why do we need to repeat this prayer three times? That's inefficient. And so they got their little, their, their, their little uh, checkbook, you know, their check marks, and they're checking off the things we don't need. And, and the Orthodox view is, you know, put your little clipboards down. If you ever want to have unity with the East again, you're going to have to assure us that you're not going to do that to our form of worship. So that's, there's an alienation involved in thinking that I'm worshiping radically differently from how my ancestors did. And it's, it's, it's a way that consistently, when you look at the changes that were made to the Mass of 40, 50 years ago, again and again, what are the changes all doing? The changes are all, in one way or another, watering down or making unclear what the Mass is basically supposed to be all about. And the Mass is supposed to be about, it's a sacrifice offered to God. And Protestants don't like that. So therefore, well, let's, let's, try and, let's try and not talk so much about that. Let's talk about the Mass as a banquet. Let's talk about it as togetherness, like whatever, we, whatever possible thing it can be. Uh, and so to me, I want the old style. I want, I want to worship the way Thomas Aquinas worshipped. I want to worship in a way that belongs to me as my heritage as a Catholic. And that's what Pope Benedict XVI said. We all had the right to. We had the right to worship this way. And he all but said it was wrong for church authorities not only to have taken this from us, 
but to have insinuated that we're probably deranged in some way. I mean, the church for years and centuries told us this is the holiest, most sacred thing we have, and then said, oh, by the way, remember that thing we said was the holiest and most sacred thing? Forget that. We, we got something that we got version 2.0. It's even better. And Pope Benedict said, no, that's, see, that's not the way the Catholic Church operates. And I, I agree. You screw around with the, with the worship, you're going to fool around with people's faith. And right now we're in a crisis of faith. Now, let me ask you something. Some of our Protestant friends may say, hey, you're critical of the Pope. So why are you a Catholic? Well, because we don't be- – a lot of people misunderstand what the Catholic view of the Pope is. I mean, we owe him respect the same way you owe respect to any important office holder. But it doesn't mean that if the Pope's favorite color is green, yours can't be blue, or that the Pope is going to tell you the best architectural methods to use to build a church. The Pope can say, we ought to build churches so that they reflect the dignity of God, but he can't say, now here's how much concrete you need. I mean, that's not his bailiwick. He doesn't have any particular insight into that kind of question. And likewise, a lot of these off-the-cuff interviews that the Pope has been giving are on matters that are of questionable, that are questionably related to his office. And moreover, do not involve his infallibility. As a matter of fact, there was a, and I can't remember his name, but a well-known Italian journalist who's been very critical of the Pope from a conservative, traditionalist point of view. The Pope actually got on the phone to him and thanked him and said, I know your criticism is coming from a love for the church, and I welcome that. And so that was interesting because a lot of times we think, well, you can't ever say anything negative. If the Pope is saying, I solemnly reaffirm the traditional Catholic teaching on X and Y, then, yeah, you've got to salute and get in line there. But if he's saying, I personally think global warming is the biggest challenge today, that doesn't mean you have to believe the biggest. You could say, well, I think abortion is the biggest challenge. I mean, that's obviously a debatable question, not a matter of faith and morals. Do you have any comments on the, the handling of the scandals in the church by the present pope? Well, yes. I mean, I, I think that the, the criticisms are are uh, more than valid. It does look like there was some shenanigans going on with Cardinal McCarrick, who, who was not supposed to be allowed to be traipsing around the world as if nothing was wrong. Um, I think there is... I think there's a lot of stuff that we barely have scratched the surface about, and I don't get the sense that we're dealing with somebody whose blood is boiling from moral outrage. That's not how people like that behave. Uh, But I wouldn't say it's just him. I I think this goes back uh, at least several pontificates where I think there's been tremendous weakness instead of a swift clearing out. Of, of bad people. There, there should just be a swift removal. And ever since Vatican II, there's been this fear to exercise papal authority. There's been this view that we need to have collegiality, we need to let the bishops make a lot more decisions. Well, in a case like this, I want the old-timey monarchical pope cleaning house, and I think the Catholic world would cheer, so I don't know why they won't do it. Do you think there's hope in the near future? I think in the, in the long run we all have hope, but in the near future, is there hope? I just don't know, because unfortunately I feel like the, the College of Cardinals is being stacked with people who are more interested in the passing political issues of the day than they are in enduring Catholic teaching. And so maybe we're in, we're in store for Francis II and the Third. And meanwhile, our families are collapsing, moral catastrophe is everywhere, and we're being urged to take care of plastic in the oceans. I think that's, uh, that's pretty bad. But at the same time, the silver lining to all this, if you can call it that, is that liberal Catholicism does not produce liberal Catholics. It produces non-Catholics, unfortunately. But what that does mean is that disproportionately, people who really believe in what the Church is all about 
I think as time goes on, proportionately represented in the church, and maybe that's the basis from which we can rebuild. Well, let's hope so. Thomas Woods, thank you for being on Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Mike, my pleasure. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Those of you listen to the show, you know we spent a lot of time on the Civil War, and we've spent a lot of time on founding fathers from the American Revolution and the beginning of, of our republic. But we really haven't spent a lot of time in between. And we're going to try to rectify that today. We have noted historia, historian H.W. Brands, who's got a book out, Heirs of the Fathers, The Epic Rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, the second generation of American giants. Welcome to Connor's Corner, H.W. Brands. Delighted to be here. Obviously, we know what the book is about through the title, but I think a lot of listeners don't know who the three people that you're talking about, the three senators that you're, you're mentioning in your book. Who are they? Well, briefly, this is the second generation of American statesmen. So the first generation is the ones that gave us independence and fought and won the Revolutionary War and wrote the Constitution. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, the usual suspects. This is the generation that came next. In fact, at the end of the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin was asked what the convention had accomplished, what it had given Americans. And his response was, a republic, if you can keep it. So this was his gift. This was his generation's accomplishment. But it was also his generation's challenge to the next generation. So the three men that I focus on, Henry Clay of Kentucky, Daniel Webster of Massachusetts, and John Calhoun of South Carolina, these were, these were the rock stars of American politics during this era. It was a time when – it was a golden age of Congress, when Congress – took the role that had been envisioned for it by the framers of the Constitution. The, the Constitution places Congress, the legislative branch, in Article I. 
And the framers assumed that Congress would take the lead in American politics, as it did during this era. So Henry Clay was the greatest figure in Congress, which made him pretty much the greatest figure in the United States. We've lost some of that memory because we now live in a time when presidents dominate American politics. But in those days, you could be the most successful politician. You'd be the greatest man in the world and never leave the Senate. Why weren't any one of these three men ever elected to the presidency? Well, part of it had to do with the fact that they were so good at what they did in the Senate. And I I mean this not to deflect the question, but the thing is that a successful president has a personality of, call it an executive personality, the one who makes the decisions kind of come hell or high water. But to be successful in the Senate, for example, you have to have a legislative personality. You have to be one who's willing to come. Compromise. So Henry Clay was known in his age as the great compromiser. He was the author of the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which brought Missouri as a slave state into the Union that divided the Louisiana Purchase Territory into a free north and a slave south. He was the author of a compromise in 1833 that kept South Carolina from bolting the Union over a tariff. He was the author of the Compromise of 1850, which held the country together again as the sectional crisis deepened. Now, Henry Clay was called the Great Compromiser at a time and in a context in Congress where being called a compromiser was a compliment. But if you're running for president, especially in our age, to be called a compromiser would be an insult. And so there is this – there's a distinction uh, in the personalities. Um, And part of it, too, was that although these men were ambitious and nobody tried for the presidency, their careers didn't hang on whether they became president or not. Henry Clay ran for president three times and lost all three times. If that happened to somebody in the 20th century, then that person's obituary would be three-time loser for the presidency. That was about the, the seventh paragraph in the obituaries of Henry Clay, because in those days, you could be a brilliant success in politics and never really get anywhere near the White House. Let me ask you this, Henry Clay, getting back to Henry Clay. He was, uh, you know, one of the founding members of the Whig Party. And what was the Whig Party? What was their their purpose in American history? The Whig Party was basically the remnants of the original Federalist Party, and it was a forerunner of our modern Republican Party. It was the party that represented business interests. It was the party that represented the wealthy. It was the party that in its age was more in favor of a strong, active federal government as opposed to giving more authority to the states. So Henry Clay was a leader of that Whig Party. The Whig Party actually formed in the 1830s in opposition to Andrew Jackson who was the most important president of the era. He plays a large role in my story. He was the foil to Clay and Calhoun and Webster. Um, and so the Whigs, they were, they were the descendants of the Federalist Party, which broke up during the War of 1812, and they reconfigured in the 1830s. They would break up in the early 1850s when the sectional split caused Southern Whigs and Northern Whigs to discover they didn't have much in common. The Whig Party would collapse, and it would be replaced by the modern Republican Party, which in its origin was an anti-slavery and pro-business party. And in this time period, we have you, you talked about the nullification crisis. Where was John Calhoun on this? And there's some controversy about John Calhoun right now. Would, would you like to comment on it? Uh, you bet. So the, a question that basically was a hangover from the Constitutional Convention is who will reign in the 
federal government if the federal government oversteps its bounds. Now, in the 21st century, we have all basically agreed that that's what the Supreme Court does. But in the 1810s to the 1850s, the Supreme Court didn't do that. At least there was no consensus that that was what the Supreme Court was supposed to do. So the question was, who will rein in the government if it oversteps its bounds on making war or setting a tariff or restricting the spread of slavery? And John Calhoun, among others, came up with the idea that the states had the authority to do that. And the concept was nullification. A state could nullify a federal law that it found to be unconstitutional. And what that meant was that the state would refuse the enforcement of that law within its boundaries. So Calhoun first trotted out this theory in opposition to a tariff that South Carolina didn't like. And the South Carolinians decided we're not going to allow the federal government to enforce this, to collect this tariff in South Carolina. And a constitutional crisis developed because Andrew Jackson, the president, said, yes, you are going to enforce the tariff. And the country almost went to civil war in 1833. This was one of the compromises that Henry Clay arranged. He backed, he got Jackson to back down a little bit and Calhoun to back down a little bit, and the crisis passed. But this whole question of nullification would give rise to the concept of secession. If the federal government opposes nullification by a state and says, no, no, you must enforce the law, and if it did as Jackson threatened to do, sent an army in to enforce the law, then the state could conceivably vote to leave the union. And South Carolina, led by John Calhoun in 1833, said, this is what we are going to do if you insist on this course. Well, a compromise prevented that, but the idea was out there. If a state, and by the 1850s this meant if a southern state felt, felt that its interests were jeopardized by the course of federal politics, the state could, first of all, refuse to enforce laws within its boundaries and, at the ultimate, could leave the union. So John Calhoun became the chief theorist of the doctrine of secession that would ultimately give rise to the Civil War. What was his position on slavery? I, I know that's an obvious question, but not everybody out there may know this. Yeah, so John Calhoun is one whose um, attitude towards slavery changed over time. One of the interesting parts of, of what I discovered in the book is that all three of these men, they were in politics long enough, and the context was shifting enough, that their views on important issues changed. So at the beginning of his career, John Calhoun's attitude towards slavery was very much like that of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Henry Clay himself, who was also a slaveholder, and that is that slavery is this necessary evil. It's not this good thing, but there are lots of bad things in the world, war and sickness and poverty and all that, um, but it's necessary because we can't figure out how to run the southern economy without slaves. Yeah, you northerners, you don't need slavery anymore. You used to have slaves, but you figured out how to run your economy without slaves. We in the South haven't figured that out yet. So. Calhoun, like Jefferson, believed that slavery was a necessary evil, but his attitude changed over the next 20 or 30 years as Southerners came under bitter attack from the North, from Northern abolitionists, who called slavery not a necessary evil, but downright sin and a moral blot on the conscience of America, and attacked slaveholders as these evil people. And John Calhoun looked at his own soul and said to himself, at least to his satisfaction, I'm not an evil person. And his reaction was to basically get defensive and to say that slavery isn't this evil thing. Slavery is, and this is what made Calhoun notorious. He said uh, slavery is a positive good. It's a good thing for the slaves themselves. 
It Christianizes them. It brings them from dark Africa to the enlightenment of America. It saves their immortal souls. It's a good thing for the South. It makes the South more stable. It's a good thing for the country because America, not just Southerners, get the benefit of their labor, but so do Northerners who wear the cotton that has been woven into clothes by Northern textiles. Um, so Calhoun becomes associated with this idea of uh, slavery as this positive good. He is seen as the chief apologist for slavery. And this is why he's such a controversial figure today. All right. We, we haven't talked a lot about Daniel Webster. So who was Daniel Webster? Daniel Webster was born in New Hampshire and he grew up in New Hampshire. He went to Dartmouth College. He was elected to the House of Representatives from New Hampshire, New Hampshire. But he was also a, a very adept and successful lawyer. And after a few years in Congress from New Hampshire, he decided that his law practice required him to move to Boston, the biggest city in New England. So he moved to Boston, and he was then reelected to Congress from Massachusetts. So he's known as a senator from Massachusetts. He was the most brilliant speaker of the age. It was a golden age of political oratory in the United States, and he was the most moving, the most successful, the most widely appreciated of the orators. He could make people laugh. He could make people cry. He could bring tears to the eyes even of justices of the Supreme Court, including John Marshall, the most sober, august member of the Supreme Court. So he was known for his ability to speak. He was also a brilliant constitutional lawyer. Even as he was giving speeches in the Senate, Webster would give oral arguments before the Supreme Court. It was convenient for Webster that the Supreme Court in those days met in the basement of the Capitol. So he could run from the basement where he'd give an argument in some uh, Supreme Court trial, and then run up to the Senate and give a speech there. And so people in Washington hung on Daniel Webster's words. When, when news got out that Webster was going to speak, then getting a, a ticket to get into the gallery of the Senate. This was the hardest ticket to get in Washington. The House of Representatives would suspend its business because all of its members wanted to go across the way to the Senate to listen to Webster speak. So Webster was the, the voice of New England, but it was a voice that, that shifted over time. So Webster, who would become the great champion of the Union, the Union at all costs, began his political career speaking on behalf of, well, the possibility of secession because New England didn't like the War of 1812 and states in New England started thinking, you know, uh, maybe we shouldn't be part of this union anymore. And Webster laid out the constitutional, the legal argument for secession. Now, later, he would sort of bite his tongue and wish he'd never said that because he would be arguing the, act, the absolute opposite position against people like John Calhoun who said, hey, well, you were the one saying that the states could leave, and now you're saying that they're not. So Webster is a shifting character. Some of the shift had to do with his ambitions. Some of it had to do simply with the change of his mind. Now, in your research, do you have an opinion whether the states had the right to secede in 1860? Well, the reason there was such an argument is that the, the evidence is not clear cut on this. The framers of the Constitution could have written into the Constitution, this pact is permanent and no state shall ever have the right to secede, but they didn't write that in. Nor did they write in, and this pact will last only as long as the states want it to, the, the states do have the right to secede. So they could have made it clear, but they didn't. And the reason that they didn't was they knew perfectly well that if they wrote down, yes, you can secede or no, you can't secede, they wouldn't have had sufficient votes to ratify the Constitution. 
And so when Benjamin Franklin said a republic, if you can keep it, one of the things he was talking about, can you guys work this out? And so as of 1860, when South Carolina did vote to leave the Union, the jury, such as it was, was still out. I'll put it this way, that pretty much everybody in the southern states that voted for secession said that the states had the right to secede from the Union, and no one could point to definitive evidence saying you're wrong. On the other hand, Abraham Lincoln, and Daniel Webster was dead by this time, but his position was, no, you don't have the right to secede, and no one could prove that they were wrong, which is why there was this civil war, because the two sides couldn't agree. They couldn't agree in the Senate. They couldn't agree in a court of law, so they had to take it to the battlefield. And the outcome of the Civil War basically set the outer boundaries for states' rights. So it became effectively agreed upon by the end of the Civil War, no, you can't secede from the Union. But we still argue this matter of where exactly does the boundary between federal authority and state authority lie? So California is suing the federal government, and the federal government is suing California over all sorts of things, including sanctuary cities, including medical marijuana, including emissions from cars. And the Affordable Care Act authorized the states to extend Medicare and Medicaid, but some states rejected and some states accepted. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 put federal power into enforcing voting laws in the states. But the Congress fairly recently rejected it, and the Supreme Court said that's okay. So we're still fighting over this question in our federal system. Where is the boundary between federal authority and state authority? We pretty much agreed by the end of the Civil War that you can't secede from the Union, although one of the things, as a thought experiment, I sometimes wonder, so what would happen if a state decided it wanted to leave the Union? If California got fed up with Republican politics and said, we're leaving the Union, would would the other states fight to keep California in the Union? I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't is. think today they would, but that's besides the point, I guess. I mean, I guess if it was consensual, they, they could. Getting back to our, our main characters here, why are they important for us to study Webster, Calhoun, Clay today? What do they contribute to American for history? For two reasons. Yeah. So the, the first thing, um, they're important in a historical context. If you want to know how we got from the founding generation to the Civil War, you have to go through this generation. You have to go through these guys because the issues that gave rise to the Civil War existed in the 1780s at the time of the writing of the Constitution. But the Civil War didn't come till the 1860s. So delaying the Civil War was the accomplishment of this generation. And one could argue, well, all they did was delay things. But in fact, the genius of Henry Clay was an understanding that if you delay bad things, that by itself is a good thing because over time, problems have a way of working themselves out. So the problem with South Carolina over the tariff, it worked itself out and it never became an issue that way before. He hoped the same thing would happen with respect to slavery. And during his lifetime, he was able to push off that decision. Now, after his generation passed from the scene, after Clay, Calhoun, and Webster died, they, the three of them died between 1850 and 1852. The next generation did not value the art of compromise the way they did. In fact, they were the ones who pushed things to a crisis, pushed things to the brink where the South seceded and the North resisted secession and the Civil War came along. So the first thing that we get out of this is an understanding of how our country developed, 
how it was that the Civil War came. But the second thing, the takeaway for contemporary politics is a reminder of the value, the necessity, in fact, in a democracy of the spirit of compromise. In a democracy, your opponents don't have to be your enemies. They have a right to their opinion. You might think they're wrong, but they have a right to their opinion. And because they have a right to their opinion, they have a right to a seat at the table. And the most effective legislation, the most effective policies are the ones that acknowledge the right of the other side to have a say in this. We've gotten to a point where measures get passed on straight party line votes. The Affordable Care Act 2010, the Trump tax cuts, these are straight party line votes. And as soon as the other party gets in power, then they have every incentive to try to overturn those. But what Clay's generation demonstrated, and it was something, it was a lesson that held on through much of American politics was, the important reforms in American politics are the ones that have the stamp of both parties on them. And so the lesson we could take from this is if we can get back to that point where we value honorable compromise, then the problems that face our politics will be easier to resolve and the solutions will last longer instead of until just the next election. But wouldn't you say that a large part of the difference is the way senators were elected then and the way they're elected today? If, you know, you compromise too much with the other side, you're going to be primaried out and defeated back then. Well, tell, tell the audience how senators were selected back in the... Uh... Well, okay. So in the first place, in those days, in fact, until 1917, senators were elected by state legislatures rather than by voters. But you're definitely right about the effect of primaries. But it's not the primaries themselves so much as it is sort of the, the death of this spirit of compromise, which itself is a consequence of other things. Until the 19, as late as the 1980s in American politics, you could vote for measures that were promoted by the other party and not lose your political life. So when Ronald Reagan cut taxes, when he reformed Social Security, when he passed immigration reform, all of those Republican measures had Democratic votes. And the Democrats who voted for them didn't lose their seats at the next primary. This because the American political system allowed for overlap between the two parties. The Republican Party was the mostly conservative party, but there were liberal Republicans. And the Democratic Party was mostly liberal, but there were conservative Democrats. But after the 1960s, and the key issue here was civil rights, when the National Democratic Party embraced civil rights over the opposition of Southern conservative Democrats, those Southern conservative Democrats left the Democratic Party gradually and became Republicans. And so the Democratic Party became all liberal and the Republican Party became all conservative. And so now there's no overlap between the two. And so when a Republican runs for a reelection, the Republican has to worry about his primary, his or her primary election because that's what bring out, brings out the zealots in the party. And because of the way congressional districts are arranged, where nearly every district is safe for one party or the other, the real elections take place in the primaries rather than in the general election. So that sifting out of the parties philosophically or ideologically and the perfection of gerrymandering leads to this time when the idea of compromise is tantamount to political suicide. So some of it is structural, but some of it is also simply simply um, a forgetfulness, an amnesia about what compromise can accomplish. One of the things that's worth bearing in mind is that when crisis faces the country amid the financial crisis of 2008 after 9-11, the two parties will work together. So 
On the really big issues, when we know that things are really important and have to be done now, compromise is still possible. But it's that spirit of compromise that allows a democracy to continue, to thrive. Another lesson related to this from this earlier era for today is Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, John Calhoun understood that democracy is fragile. You can't take it for granted. You have to cultivate it. We take it for granted because we've had this democracy for 200 years and we think it's going to go on forever. But things don't necessarily go on forever. And if we can recapture that idea that you got to take care of these institutions and you have to take care of the value systems that go along with them, because otherwise you might not be able to hand this intact to the next generation. The name of the book, Heirs of the Founders, The Epic Rivalry of Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster, The Second Generation of American Giants. The author, H.W. Brands, thank you for bringing history to life. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the U.N. published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. We're back again. Okay. You know, again, the period between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War is kind of forgotten. And we've been spending a lot of time uh, the last few weeks, months, between John Marshall and Andrew Jackson. And it's an extraordinarily and these, these important political time in history. And the forgotten... Whig Party. I mean, it, it, it's, inter- it's so very interesting. And it, it lets you, I think, understand the Civil War so much better. If you don't understand those four parties going into the Civil War, you don't understand what happened at all. Right. And next week, I think we got a, a special show coming up. Oh, we got a fun show. Yeah, we've got Paul Weiss, former president of the Civil War Roundtable. But he's not going to be talking about the Civil War. He's going to be talking about his experiences in Vietnam. You know, he's, he's got a unique perspective. He was somebody who's there. He's got good memory and a good sense of humor, and he's always well-spoken. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. He's our buddy. That. Yes. And after that, we've got Dick Morris. Dick Morris has a book out, Fifty Shades of Politics. And, and that he, says it all, right? right. <laughs> and he's got a lot of stories he's going to tell about the Clintons and other parts of history, and I'm looking forward to that one, too. So next week, Paul Weiss on his experiences in Vietnam War, and then... 
Dick Morris. We're going to spend mostly our time talking about the Clintons, but he's talking about other parts of you know his political political career, war, right? And remember, Dick Morris was was the guy who made Bill Clinton what he was, and I think he might have some regrets now. But that's conversation for another week. Also, I think next week we're going to follow up a little bit on the question we had today about younger couples and why right. they should have certain right. documents. Right. So don't forget about us. Come back to listen to Ask the Lawyer next week at the same time. Same now, station. Same station. Now, we are going to be making a program change. We are going to be heard on Sundays at 11 a.m. instead of Sundays at 5 p.m. PM. The reason for that is over the last few months, as you may know, a lot of times we get canceled for sporting events. And listen, you know, we love sports, but still. It's frustrating. In an effort so that we won't have as many cancellations, we'll still be on Saturdays at six o'clock where we'll be canceled occasionally. But we're going to be on every Sunday at 570. I'm sorry, every Saturday at 570 the mission, eight o'clock in the morning. So we'll have very few cancellations for sports then. And we're going to be on 11 o'clock, 970 the answer. So again, we should be in a position where we don't have any cancellations for sports. Again, if you want to learn anything about estate planning and elder law, don't be afraid to give us a call, 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We'll answer all your questions about estate planning and elder law. Again, the idea behind estate planning is to pass that your assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. As far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. See you next week. Bye-bye. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.